From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. Aside from bone-chilling weather in North Texas, COVID-19 and impeachment dominated the headlines again last week. On the podcast, Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers are joined by Dr. Cameron Webb, a member of the White House COVID-19 response team, Matthew Wilson, a political science professor at SMU, and State Representative Michelle Beckley, a Democrat from Carrollton. Plus, Julie takes a look back at the life of Congressman Ron Wright, who died February 7th after contracting COVID-19. We start with coronavirus. Dr. Cameron Webb is a Democrat who ran for a congressional seat in Virginia in November. He lost the race but was named to the White House COVID-19 response team in January. Webb's official title is Senior Policy Advisor for COVID-19 Equity. He joined Julian Gromer to talk about new large-scale vaccination sites coming to Texas and best practices for residents while they await their shots. It was announced this week there will be three super sites in Texas, two in the North Texas area. How much can this speed up the vaccine process? Well, we think it's a compliment. I think if you look overall, states and localities are doing a lot to get the vaccine out. And certainly the governor down in Texas has been doing a lot. But we think these large community vaccination centers are really one of the keys, not just in speeding up the distribution of the vaccine, but also in making sure we get to some of those hardest hit, highest risk communities. And so we think that you know these three sites are going to do a lot to not only get a lot of shots in arms, but also get a lot of shots in the arms of the folks who've been hit hardest by this pandemic. Doctor, what has been the biggest challenge with this vaccine rollout and trying to get the vaccine is in as many arms as possible? Well, I, I think there are a couple of pieces. I think that, you know, first and foremost, there's a supply chain. So I think getting that supply of this relatively new vaccine uh, up to where we can get it to, you know, over 300, and, you know, 300 million people. So that, that amount of 600 million doses that we've that we've uh, already purchased, that's great, but we're not all, they're not gonna have all that at once. So that's one of the challenges, of course, of the supply chain. The bigger thing is there's there's a messaging challenge, I think that, you know, particularly with some communities and my, my work, my focus tends to be in the equity space around the vaccine rollout. But we know that not all communities are, are taking to this vaccine the same way because of a lot of dynamics, both historical and present. And so I think that we both have to kind of, you know, build the, build the plane while we're flying it. You know, we have to make sure that people are, are ready to, to be enthusiastic about taking a vaccine that we think is safe and effective, but at the same time that we have enough supply for them when it's ready. So I think that those two components are there. I will say, you know, the, the interest in both speed and equity, those two things can go hand in hand. So we, we are looking to do both, but I think we have to make sure we do it right because we don't want the hardest hit communities left behind. Overall, I know the vaccine rollout has been a challenge. What has been the biggest challenge in getting this pandemic under control for the administration? Well, everything is new. If you look from the very beginning, I mean, when you say the administration and the Biden-Harris administration, again, we've been at this for three weeks and I think that it's going pretty well. We've been able to increase the amount of vaccine supply going to the states week over week, which has been really important. We've been able to coordinate with governors, with states all over the, the country. And I think that's been important. We've been able to stand up four new models uh, of how to distribute vaccine. And so between our community vaccination centers, between our, our retail pharmacy program, our federally qualified health centers, we have some mobile units uh, that, we're, that we're also getting online. And so there are a lot of different venues for vaccine that we're increasing. So I would say right now, it's just a matter of you know, we, we're in, we're getting the work done, and I think that that's important, but we've seen really measurable progress in these three weeks, and, uh, and we're moving certainly in the right direction, 
Um, you know, of course, cases are coming down and that's good, but I think that we wanna just keep our foot on the gas, make sure that we're getting vaccine to folks who are interested in receiving it. You mentioned the, the three weeks and, and keeping your foot on the gas. How long until everybody in the population who wants a, a vaccine uh, is able to get one? Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of and a million dollar question. One, right? <laughs> no, it, it, it's a question we get regularly. And so I think for us, we, we certainly have purchased the vaccine supply for all adults in the country you know, to be able to get a vaccine. Now, when that's going to be available, somewhat is limited by how quickly these pharmaceutical companies, the vaccine manufacturers can, can get it made and get it up to us. And they're working really hard. We're, we're using everything we have in our armamentarium to help support them in getting vaccine to us. And so I don't know a, a specific date, but I do know that, that what we're gonna continue to do week over week is have more vaccine going into states. And remember, this is a phased rollout. So we're focusing on the folks who are at the highest risk of severe COVID, the highest risk of death first, and making sure that they're vaccinated, making sure our, our essential workers, our healthcare providers are taken care of. And so those are all things that are, are recommendations from the science that we're following. And then we're making sure that everybody who wants a vaccine, that's gonna be the plan over the next weeks and months to make sure that's able to be done. So yes, it's not gonna happen immediately, but we do believe that right now, the, the fierce urgency is around making sure that everybody who's at the highest risk of severe COVID, the highest risk of dying, has access to this vaccine as soon as possible. You know, right now in North Texas, in Texas in general, we're seeing the trends improving. We're seeing numbers go down, hospitalizations, but you know, we've had very high numbers. How do you keep this going in that direction? Well, I think the messaging has to stay really consistent. So yes, the vaccine is here. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we also have to remember that tried and true public health messaging is the key here. It's continuing to wear masks that work, that fit, that are effective. We know that's gonna be a key. We know continuing those, those kind of physical distancing practices, that's going to be a key. So we wanna make sure that people know that those rules, they're important. They're gonna help us get this under control. And at the same time, you know, if you have symptoms, stay away from those places where you can spread the, the virus. These are messages we've been passing for the last year, but I think now that we're starting to see these numbers uh, you know, turn, it's hold tight. Let's stick through this. Everybody mask up for, for these next couple of months. Make sure that we're, we're uh, using those best practices. We're not putting ourselves unnecessarily in harm's way or our community in harm's way. That's how we'll see the numbers continue to improve. And of course, the vaccine, that's going to help. But again, these, that public health uh, you know, core messaging has to be uh, top of mind for all Americans. And, and doctor, I would imagine that message has its own unique challenge now, given that people have been dealing with this for almost a year. You know, maybe they, they're a little stir crazy. They see the light at the end of the tunnel and, and you have to tell them the state of course, right? That's right. And they, they say the night is darkest before the dawn. We, we've seen a couple of different spikes of this pandemic over the last year. And so I think what we wanna tell people is let's finish the job. Let's wear our masks. Let's keep our distance. Let's follow those best public health practices. Let's make sure that we're getting tested if we've come in contact with somebody. Let's do everything as well as we can to finish this job. And in the meantime, we're getting vaccine out to protect uh, you know, our loved ones, our communities, and even ourselves 
from getting sick with COVID or passively possibly dying. Those are the keys. And, and so we just have to keep encouraging folks. Now, I know it's tough. It's tough for, for my wife and I, we're both frontline you know, physicians, medical providers, it's tough for my kids. And so we're all in this together. But I think that at the end of the day, we know that if we buckle down in this moment, when we see things moving in the right direction, we have a chance to get through this and in this uh, you know, as quickly as possible. Dr. Webb, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We have plenty of coronavirus-related resources on our website, NBCDFW.com, including where to get a vaccine and how to register. Former President Donald Trump's defense team presented its case Friday after House impeachment managers spent two days trying to sway enough Republican senators to vote to impeach. It would take 67 votes to convict Trump. The Senate is split between 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. So what can we expect early this week as the trial wraps? SMU political science professor Matthew Wilson is back to help break it down. The House managers have presented their case with videos capturing the moment-by-moment -moment siege. While compelling, do you see a conviction here? I think a conviction is, is very unlikely. Um, I don't expect that you get more than five or six Republicans at the most who would vote to convict. And of course, that would then fall well short of the threshold of 67 total senators that would be required uh, in order to convict. So I don't see a conviction coming because uh, there, there's enough of an ability for Republicans to say, President Trump didn't directly incite violence. He actually called for protesters to be peaceful. He has a right to object to the election outcome. Uh, and, and we've already seen a signal from Republican senators that the great majority of them don't believe that this process of trying a former president is even constitutional in the first place. So no, I don't see a conviction. Yeah, Professor, uh, let's talk about the arguments about whether it's constitutional or not. And, and you know, they also argue that this process was rushed and that the former president's First Amendment rights have been somewhat violated. How do you think this will play in the court of public opinion? Well, so some of those arguments are stronger than others. Uh, I actually think the First Amendment argument is not a very strong one in the sense that uh, Im impeachment is not a criminal prosecution, right? The president is not being uh, put at jeopardy of his life or liberty or property. That is, he's not facing a, a criminal sanction for anything that he said. So the First Amendment doesn't really apply here. Uh, impeachment and then a, a subsequent judgment on an impeachment is not a criminal act or a criminal conviction. It's a, it's a political act. Uh, and so I don't think that the First Amendment argument will go very far. I think they're on much stronger grounds uh, to talk about constitutionality. Is this process being used as it was intended? Did the founders even envision someone who had already left office being subject to this kind of sanction? That's a, a very legitimate question. Uh, and then the other uh, argument that may resonate is uh, whether the, the president's connection to the, the violent actions at the Capitol is close and direct enough to, to merit this conviction on the impeachment charge, as opposed to something less like a resolution of censure or something of that nature. Well, the former president doesn't have Twitter, as we know. We've not heard much from his campaign and advisors. What do you make of that? 
Well, uh, President Trump is clearly, I mean, really suffering without Twitter because it was for years his communications lifeline to the public. It was his way to be able to to go around the media and not to have his uh, remarks kind of filtered or, or mediated by someone else. Uh, and now he doesn't really have that. So we haven't been able to hear him weigh in on what's going on. Um, in some ways, that may actually be helpful to him <laughs> in that he... he uh, is forced to resist the temptation to, to pop off or say something incendiary. Uh, so in some ways, it may be good for him that he's not directly weighing in on everything that's that's said uh, on the Senate floor. Uh, but but that means we only get indirect reports of what he's thinking about these proceedings. And apparently early on, he was not happy with the performance of his own attorneys. Uh, hopefully today, from his standpoint, he's, he's a little happier with what they were saying and doing, but we only get these indirect reports. Professor, does, this, uh, does the Republican support for the former president in the Senate, and quite frankly, the House also, does it signal that he is still the leader of the Republican Party? It signals that he is still uh, the single most powerful and influential person in the party. I think that is clear. I think that will slowly wane over time, uh, particularly as he is off Twitter and is not a daily media presence. Uh, so his influence right now is still significant within the party. He'll always have some voice and some role to play. I do think increasingly, though, Republicans are, are ready to move on from the Trump era. Uh, they'd like to get this trial behind them um, to, to start focusing on the 2022 elections and their you know, opposition to the Biden administration and how they're going to try to capture the House of Representatives uh, in 2022. So, yeah, I mean, Trump is still someone that Republicans don't want to cross and don't want to alienate. But with every day that he's out of power, that level of influence diminishes just a bit. So his, I would say Trump's influence and power within the party is on the way down, not on the way up. So if you see the influence on the way down, where do you see the future of the Republican Party? Well, the challenge for the Republican Party is going to be to bridge the divide between the Trump constituency, right? The people that Trump brought into the Republican Party, the people that he attracted with his strong message on things like trade and immigration and some of the hot button cultural issues, but, but also reaching out to uh, some of the traditional Republicans, uh, more fiscally oriented, uh, more highly educated in the suburban areas that Trump's style and behavior alienated. And so the question is, can the Republican Party walk that fine line. Can they be Trumpy enough to retain his supporters, but not so Trumpy that they continue to alienate the kinds of people that Trump put off? Um, some Republicans have tried to do that. Some people like Nikki Haley, for example, has done a pretty good job thus far of walking that line. Um, Marco Rubio has done a fairly good job of, of walking that line. But I don't think the future of the Republican Party rests with the never-Trumpers. That is, it doesn't rest with the people that want to publicly and explicitly repudiate the president. But, but nor does it lie with the people who are just totally uh, in the Trump camp, closely associated personally with President Trump. It's, uh, it's a fine line to walk, and we'll see if they can do it. 
Stay with NBC5 on TV and online for live video of the impeachment trial this week. Let's pivot to the state level. Texas Representative Michelle Beckley, a Democrat from Carrollton, was elected to her second term in the state house in November. She represents Texas's 65th House District, which includes parts of Carrollton and Louisville in Denton County. Beckley has introduced House Bill 1519, which would allow permit holders to deliver alcohol across the state. She's also been among the most vocal House members regarding COVID-19 protocols and called early in the vaccine process for Denton County Public Health to be selected as a hub. Here's Representative Beckley with Julian Gromer. First of all, you have a bill out that may make you popular with many Texans making alcohol to go permanent. Yeah, so it's actually kind of um, for the liquor stores. So the actual bigger bottles, not just the ones you get from the restaurant. So it's mainly to go from the package stores, which I did learn what a package store is now. I had no idea that that's what that's what liquor stores are. Um, so it's it's um, kind of taking alcohol to go one one step further. And that letting you, the apps that deliver like Drizzly or, you know, there's um, amazing how many of those people have contacted me that they like the bill, um, that how many of those apps so that you can get it delivered to your house. So Representative, explain to us what the situation is kind of now because liquor laws are, are confusing to a lot of people. And oh. What exactly will change and what will, in your view, make it more convenient? Sure. So, um, I mean, like many people, I mean, I'm just, I mean, a lot of people think of us as these like exalted people that were elected offices, but we're really not. I'm really, I'm a bird store owner that pretty much lives the same life that most of, most of my constituents live. Um, and during the pandemic, I, I do believe in, you know, stopping the spread. So I was doing my groceries delivered and having everything delivered. Um, and then realized what the convenience is. And I went on to the Drizzly app and realized that I couldn't get, um, in this day, I was trying to order vodka and oh. could not get it delivered. I, I could only get beer and wine delivered and then started searching into why, why, why not? Like, I mean, and, and so then I started researching what was going on. Well, it wasn't that day. It then evolved right. into why is that I can get, um, beer and wine delivered. And then I realized, I, I know I live in a damp city. So what we call a damp city here in Texas, which is for the, anybody who's listening, who's not from Texas, means we can have beer and wine. We just can't have, there's no liquor stores, but there, I mean, Louisville is a mile away. And so, you know, they could very easily deliver to me. Um, and I just didn't see the logic as to why they couldn't deliver to me. And so then we go start researching into the laws and to why that is. And so that's where that bill came about. Then I start, then you start talking to your constituents and you see, and, and, you know, the reality is to take a city from, to make it wet, um, it's a lot of processes. It, it's very difficult. You've got to get, first you got to get a petition signed, then you got to get a city council that'll put it up to a vote, and then you have to have everybody vote on it. And so it's a lot of processes. So while I'm not going to step on the toes of the city council that doesn't want the brick and mortar stores in their city, um, I would like the ability of people to be able to have the convenience of having it delivered to their house, so end user. Um, and as a matter of fact, I just got off with um, the package stores and their distributors just right before I had a Zoom with them right before this one, just kind of working out some details. Um, and so it won't won't cross some. We're going to make it within the county so that we don't have any legalities with the court system. 
that that will eliminate. And then they also will not fight it as much. So you know, you you, you start learning a lot of the laws. Yeah. And we're hoping they won't. We'll, we'll see where it, and there's no guarantees, but we're trying to get it passed. Yeah, because it seems like a, a a nice compromise. You mentioned a community may not want a brick and mortar kind of traditional mm-hmm. liquor store in their community, but if you can get people to have that that product delivered to their home, mm-hmm. that seems like a, a a perfect compromise there. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, for me, I I I understand both. You know, I'm right, but when you when you're elected, I ran for mayor beforehand, and I get like so you kind of learn about that. That's a different office as far as they get the vision of the city and their vision of the city may not include a liquor store for whatever reason they don't want a liquor store um and this is a compromise to that and so that the the people in the city can get what they want if you don't and you know if you don't want your alcohol delivered then by all means don't order it so you know talk about you know you're you're working on this bill you're working on other bills during this this legislative session, like none that we've ever seen before, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, what's it been like? Um, so, you know, I am, it's different, but, you know, I, I'm in a business of which people don't really think about as bird, you know, the bird business. First of all, people don't think about why are you not like, I mean, I'm kind of an anomaly, I'm not going to lie, but um, as far as what, what, a, what would be a politician, um, but, but our voice is very much, very much good to be here in this, in, in this environment. Um, and I think that's what the voters, you know, they see the advantage of it. So the thing is, is that my business deals with airborne diseases because birds are very susceptible. So for me to just shift all my staff over to these protocols was actually not a big deal. And, um, so like none of my, none of my state staff has gotten COVID. Um, I haven't, uh, now I had a, a, have an employee at my store did, he worked at another job as well. But the main thing is to not like have the whole store get COVID. Like you want, like not everybody to get it. So um, setting the protocols, I mean, my office has pretty strict pro- protocols. We're not letting people come in um, the office. Uh, so we're meeting via Zoom or, but we are working in the office because I do believe you can function your business should be able to function while you're doing it. And, and some of, we have a very collaborative office, so um, we, we need to see each other. So, um, but it, you know, it's a challenge because um, you're not seeing a lot of people face-to-face. Um, I am in group 1B and I am fortunate enough that I'm fully vaccinated now, so I'm a, that, but that's just recent. So now I feel a little bit more comfortable in meeting with different people. I'm a little more comfortable, but my staff isn't. And I, so I still, um, cause we don't know what, you know, there's still a lot of unknowns with the vaccination. So, um, I still do tests before I go to the house floor. And when I come in here is to make sure I'm not exposing anybody. So representative you and your, your, your sister lawmaker, representative Anna Maria Ramos of Richardson, <laughs> you just took a stand and did not attend, uh, the swearing in ceremony. Uh, which is a, a pretty big big deal for folks, right? I mean, it was a, yeah. kind of a sacrifice that you made not to, to participate, but you felt it was important. Why? I felt it was important. Um, you know, we have spent nine months a year trying to not get COVID, and, and the CDC guidelines are, you know, six feet apart. And unfortunately, on the floor, um, we're sitting about three feet apart from five different people. And so... Um, if you, if you range it out to six feet, it's even more people. Um, 
it just, you know, we, both of us are, don't want COVID. And so, and we, and, you know, I've done Zoom family events. I did Zoom birthdays. We didn't, we haven't met. I followed pretty much all, as much of the guidelines as we possibly can. And, and, you know, none of my family members have gotten COVID, but we've been pretty, you do isolate. There is some isolation. Um, so we did that stance. Um, but, you know, actually at the end of the day, you know, she and I had our own ceremony and her husband um, got to swear, you know, we found that there's other, you don't have to do the big ceremony. You could do your own ceremony. Right. And we did, we did it. We did our own ceremony. We had, we did it our own way. So we have that memory. So, I mean, I think it's, I think at the end of the day, I mean, honestly, I think people, I actually didn't think it was going to be as newsworthy as it happened to be, but it ended up being pretty newsworthy. Um, and then, then come to find out that I was sitting in front of one of the people who had COVID, who tested COVID on his way out on Thursday and had sat with them in front of him for two days. So I wasn't wrong that, that COVID is in this building and we are being exposed. Before, before we let you go, Representative, I have to ask you, because you brought it up. Do you drink like one of those fancy <laughs> vodkas or her, her, I mean, what, what was the brand? I was curious. What, I, what, I was ordering what? Tito's. Oh, so, there you go. Oh, you know, I was ordering Tito's. Of course, I was ordering Tito's. And then, you know, when I drink whiskey, I might be drinking some bent whiskey from the district. Oh, not gonna wow. lie, you know. See, and, and that one's that one's even great because it's female owned. So I can we can go on about bent distillery if you want to. But yeah, no. So I was ordering Tito's that day. All right. Well, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate you. Be safe. Okay. Drive safely. Yes. I will. Thank you guys. Have a great day. And finally, last week, the first sitting member of Congress died after contracting COVID-19, Representative Ron Wright, a Republican from Arlington. The 67-year-old Wright was also fighting a prolonged battle against lung cancer. Here's Julie. Ron Wright's a giant of a man that we lost today. As friends remember Congressman Ron Wright. Ron stood strong all the way to the end. They remember faith, family, his love of the job, and strength. He never let on. He never was one to complain. Uh, but that was the way he was. He was always positive. He was always uplifting. In 2018, he was diagnosed with cancer and told us this in July of 2019. Don't let it define you. Don't let it stop you. Keep working. Keep dreaming. Keep doing things that you enjoy. He did, like being with family and continuing to travel to Washington to keep working. Wright also ran for a second term. No surprise to longtime friend Tarrant County Sheriff Bill Wayborn, who knew him through his time on Arlington City Council, Tarrant County Tax Assessor, and Congressman. Ron Wright was the same guy all the time. He was honest, full of integrity. He was the guy, the statesman that we always wanted. Uh, and just full of integrity and, and, and the guy that uh, you could count on for great, solid advice. Echoed by decades-old friend, Tarrant County District Clerk, Tom Wilder. He didn't have a bit of quit in him, and what you saw in private was what you got in public. For more than two years, Wright fought cancer. He was recently hospitalized with COVID-19 and passed away. You know, he would, he would do whatever he could to help move things forward and always wanted to, to be sure that he left the place better than it was before he got there. He will be remembered by many.
Ron Wright was 67 years old. Governor Abbott will call a special election to fill his seat. Gromer, this is someone that came in on every, every time he was here, and he just had a really, really positive attitude, even though he was obviously battling cancer more than we knew, and he was very special. Yeah, the, the, the last shot of him, that smile on his face with the bow tie, says it all. And, you know, I, I remember he one of his last visits here after the show, we, we talked about his diagnosis, and he was just so upbeat. Uh, he was doing well, and he was looking forward to serving the, uh, the people of District 6. And let me add, Julie, he loved the, this area. He loved Arlington. He loved the congressional district. Thanks to Dr. Cameron Webb, Professor Matthew Wilson, and Representative Michelle Beckley for joining the show this week. You can stay up to date on everything related to Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. Stay warm and stay safe. We'll talk to you next week.